Hello, Shane, and welcome back to Science Rehashed. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you are listening. We hope you are well. Hello, Maddie. We have some very exciting news. At the beginning of this month, we participated and won the 2020 Life Sciences and Healthcare Nonprofit Pitch Challenge hosted by Life Sciences Cares and MassBio. Yes, it was very exciting. Thank you to Life Science Cares and MassBio, as well as Adgene for the opportunity to share our mission with all of them. It was truly a recognition of our team. None of the accomplishment that we have achieved over the last year would be possible without an amazing team at Science Rehashed. I also would like to applaud all the finalists. It was great learning about their mission. So today our focus is a paper on a pilot treatment for the movement disorder Parkinson's disease. Discovery. Rehashing science. And our incredible guest, Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer of Mass General Hospital, takes us through the case study for one patient with a novel treatment for the disease. Yes, this is a neurodegenerative disorder that, like Alzheimer's disease, is being heavily researched due to its complex pathology. There are multiple factors that can bring on Parkinson's, including genetics, environment, and what some refer to as sporadic. So when a disease occurs without any understood trigger or cause, we call that sporadic. Okay, Jeff, thank you again for joining us for this episode. And if you would like to go ahead and introduce yourself and a little bit of brief introduction of your career. I'm uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer, uh, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, specializing in functional neurosurgery, which is an aspect of neurosurgery dealing with quality of life or conditions like movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease and epilepsy. What has been your path in the life sciences up until this point? Well, that's a very complicated and long story. I was an MD, PhD from Harvard Medical School many, many years ago. Did a neurosurgery residency at UCLA, followed by a fellowship in epilepsy surgery at Yale, and then was in academics for several years before I took over the functional neurosurgery section of uh, Kaiser Permanente in Southern California and was the head of that section for their epilepsy and movement disorder population for about 13 years. Accumulated a lot of clinical experience. And when you see that many patients, you see very clearly what works and what doesn't work. But that was a very interesting era in the treatment of Parkinson's disease in particular, because there were rapid developments in surgery. It was an era where the idea of surgery for Parkinson's disease was reintroduced after about 20 years of used very little. And I was able to move along with the field. Towards the end of that time, it became clear that better things were needed. And I moved back towards academics, came involved with the research project that we're talking about today, which led my way back to Boston after something like 36 years. So big circle back to where I began. 
And before we get into the specifics of your paper today, I would like to provide some context on Parkinson's as a whole. Can you give us a basic explanation of what causes the different types of Parkinson's? What they have in common is the loss of cells in the brain that make dopamine. There are various places in the brain where that neurotransmitter is made, but there's one main place in the center of the brain, an area called the midbrain, which supplies dopamine to most of the brain. It's kind of like oil for the engine. It facilitates various processes in different parts of the brain. And in people with Parkinson's disease, those cells are lost and the effects of the dopamine are lost. What are the symptoms of Parkinson's and can you distinguish that between motor and non-motor symptoms? The main effects that you see, the ones that are most prominent and obvious are a tremor, what's called a resting tremor, shaking at rest stiffness, rigidity of the movements, and something called bradykinesia, slowness of movement. So those are the three main things. But some of the earliest symptoms in people who develop this disease are non-motor symptoms involving constipation, uh, loss of the ability to smell, sleep disorders. Many of these things are as bad or worse for patients than the movement disorders that are more obvious to someone seeing a person with this problem. And what is the traditional treatment for Parkinson's patients? Can Parkinson be treated with a dopamine replacement medication? It's not dopamine that's given to these patients. It's levodopa. It's a precursor from which dopamine is made, and it's given together with a compound called carbidopa, which prevents that precursor from being chewed up in the periphery before it gets to the brain. That therapy was developed, I believe, in 1968, 1969. Prior to that, there was a considerable interest in surgery uh, going back into the late 50s. Uh, That's kind of a long story. But when that treatment came out, that became the mainstay of treatment. And it is the mainstay of treatment to this day. But it doesn't take care of everything. It works fairly well for the main symptoms. But there are issues with it. People tend to develop a problem called dyskinesias over time. They get excessive movement when they take the medication. Their response to the medication becomes more unpredictable. There are symptoms that it treats better and symptoms it treats not so well. Tremor is one of those symptoms that tends to respond maybe not so well as the stiffness and rigidity. So it's a gold standard. It's the mainstay of therapy but it's not the only therapy. And it has what we call the therapeutic window, kind of diminishes over time in most people. So between the loss of efficacy in some and the side effects in others, it becomes more and more difficult to use it, which is one of the reasons that surgery began to be of interest again in the 90s, when after 20 years of using the levodopa therapy, some of these problems became apparent. Oh, this is great. So one emerging treatment over the last two decades is called deep brain stimulation or DBS. Can you tell us a little bit about how he emerged as a treatment? A deep brain stimulation has been approved for Parkinson's since I think about 2001. Uh, prior to that, we treated Parkinson's starting in the early 90s with lesions. We would go into various targets in the brain and burn a hole there. There are two main targets, one called the globus pallidus interna and the other called the subthalamic nucleus. We didn't make holes in the subthalamic nucleus for various reasons because of side effects. It's a small target, even though in animal models, it seemed like it might be a good place to use. So we did an operation called pallidotomy, reintroduced in 1991. 
but that's an old operation that really goes back to the 1950s. Then there was something called thalamotomy, which was in a different place in the thalamus, which was used for tremor. It's interesting, these places in the brain are not direct motor control targets. They're involved in sensory motor feedback circuits. Um, but part of the way that we did those surgery to make sure it was safe before we burned a hole there was we would stimulate through the electrode that we had in that target in the brain. And we could suppress symptoms with that. And that told us we were in a good place. Then some off-the-shelf technology from a company called Medtronic was developed by a surgeon in France, Alim Benabid, into a permanent implanted method of stimulating these targets where we used to make holes. So this is basically a non-destructive use of those old lesion targets. One thing that I would like to know, what are the side effects of DBS and how effective is it as a treatment? Again, there are good aspects and bad aspects. It turns out that, in fact, it's safe to put these stimulators in that subthalamic nucleus target, which we couldn't make a hole in. It works very well, but it can make people's speech worse. It can make their balance worse. So it works great for some things, but not so great for others. Same thing with the other target, GPI. It can be a bit more difficult to program, require higher voltages, maybe work not as well for the tremor, but better for some other symptoms. So again, none of them are perfect. They are all an addition to the medication. Very few people come off medication with those things. But in a patient, for example, who has the dyskinesias, the uncontrolled movement that I mentioned before, putting the deep brain stimulators in can be a very helpful way of managing those problems together with the medications. These are all symptomatic treatments. They're not cures, and they do require surgery and a permanently implanted pacemaker and wires, which are a little bit off-putting to some people who don't want them. So there's a, a particularly large population of patients who would be good candidates for DPS who simply don't like that idea of having wires and pacemakers in the brain and therefore uh, don't want to do it. Okay, are there any other obstacles that prevent DPS being more widely used? There's also an education problem with this. There are a lot of community physicians and even some neurologists, I'm afraid, who are a little bit leery of surgery and don't refer people who might be good candidates, just again, because there's something about the idea of surgery that's a little scary. This is incredible. And in terms of your own work, what is the main focus of your clinical Parkinson's research? Because we know that Parkinson's kind of final common pathway is the loss of these dopamine cells, particularly a, a, a small population of cells in the midbrain called the A9 cells, which project to a part of the brain called basal ganglia, the striatum, the putamen, where motor control lives. Because we know that the idea came up early on, well, if these cells are lost, can we replace them with something else that will make dopamine? And so starting back in the late 1970s and through the 80s, there were attempts to replace those cells with a number of things. A patient's own adrenal medulla tissue was used. There were efforts to use fetal tissue from pig midbrains, xenotransplantation. But best known is there were a series of uh, investigations, mainly in Sweden, but in other areas too, using aborted human fetal midbrain tissue to implant into the brain of Parkinson's patients. 
And in the open label efforts to do this, there were some patients who did remarkably well. Now, the target there was that these cells, which normally live in the midbrain, were actually put into the target area. A little bit surprising, but it's a much larger area and easier to do surgery. And in many of these patients, it worked. Unfortunately, this ended up with a set of blinded control, sham control trials where the outcomes were not so good for a number of reasons, although there were subpopulations within those controlled studies that did do well. Overall, they were judged to be unsuccessful, and so interest in that whole area waned. But a few of the patients from the original unblinded open trial studies did very well for decades, 20, 30 years. Some of them were as close to cured as you can get. And uh, so interest really never completely went away when techniques to make cells from adult tissue induced pluripotent stem cells came about. Interest revived because here was a way that you didn't have to deal with the ethical issues of embryonic cells either from a fetus or by you know, destroying an embryo to make embryonic stem cells. So there were ethical issues. Also, this provided the potential of an unlimited supply of cells, the ability to tune them in the lab and get rid of some of the problems with uniformity. In other words, it was a second chance to go back and take what we learned from the fetal tissue studies as proof of principle and try to do this better with this new source of tissue. That's where the project in the New England Journal uh, grew from. Yes, so you mentioned the paper we're here to focus on today is published in May in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Personalized iPSC-Derived Dopamine Progenitor Cells for Parkinson's Disease. This details the breakthrough in the treatment for Parkinson's that will hopefully lead to clinical trials following the success of this particular case. What did this study seek to accomplish? There were two things that we wanted to address here, among others, but two main things. Number one, we wanted to use autologous cells, cells derived from the patient's own fibroblasts in this case. Most of the work that's been done with this did not use autologous cells. It used cell lines, embryonic stem cell lines. There's been a large effort in Japan, which was originally focused on doing autologous transplantation. And in fact, they did something like this for retinal cell transplants. But it turns out to be very labor-intensive and expensive. And so that line of research decided instead to make a set of HLA match, basically kind of like blood typing, make a, a bank of various cell lines that more or less ma matched people in the population. The idea being whatever you're doing here, you're putting foreign tissue into the brain and risking an immune response and rejection with all of these transplantation techniques. So our interest was, could we use the patient's own tissue and get around that problem? And one of the things that we showed in this paper was after our patient had had both his surgeries, left and then right, and been exposed to this tissue for two years, that despite all the processing we did in the lab to turn his fibroblasts into dopamine cells, he still recognized them as his own cells. We used a humanized mouse model, basically put his immune system into a mouse, and we had our positive and negative controls, but it was recognized as self. So that's the first time that's been shown. 
but we had evidence that the cells survived, that it was safe, that he didn't develop tumors. So that was one aspect of this that was an important problem that we solved. We showed that it was possible to do this with a patient's own cells. The second thing that was of particular interest to me was getting these things to survive when you put them in the brain. The efficiency of all this transplant work has been terrible. Less than 5% of the cells you want survive. And it's not terribly surprising when you think about it because these are neurons, they're brain cells. They have very high metabolic requirements. They use a lot of oxygen and fuel. You're putting them into the brain as a, as a blob where they have no blood vessels going to them. They're dependent on the environment. And most of us in, in neurology and neurosurgery in these fields know that you, you, know, you can't deprive brain cells of oxygen for very long before bad things happen. So the solution to get the cells that you want to survive in there has been to put in a huge excess in the number of cells. And we wanted to see if we could improve on that. And there's a number of ways of doing it. One of my particular areas of interest was to modify the surgery to make it less traumatic to the patient's brain. And also, in, instead of kind of injecting a big blob in there, we, we extrude the graft as, as almost like toothpaste, improving the surface area volume ratio. And we showed that just doing that improved survival by 30%. So my area of interest has been getting these wonderful things that we make in the lab, but getting them to survive the transplantation process so that they grow out properly and get us the maximum effect in the brain. And then because they're from the patient himself, we don't have to put people on immune suppression. Dr. Schweitzer, could you please take us through the path that led to these case coming together? This is a project that I became involved with over five years ago. In this case, although there's general interest in the field in this kind of work, this was a convergence of several different groups and people with overlapping interests who happened to come together in a fortunate way. Dr. Kwang Soo Kim at McLean Hospital, Harvard Medical School, has been working on the problem of cell therapy for Parkinson's disease for over 30 years. The patient involved here is himself a physician who developed Parkinson's and was keenly monitoring what was going on in the field. And he identified Dr. Kim's lab as what he felt to be the most promising one at the time. This is back, I think, 2014, which brought them together. At the time that was happening, I was running the movement disorder program at Kaiser in Southern California, and this patient also happened to be a Kaiser member. So the neurologist at Kaiser knew of his interest and of Dr. Kim's work and knew of my experience in surgery for this brought us together and we began talking about whether we could turn the work in Professor Kim's lab into something practical to treat people with Parkinson's. The patient himself wanted to be involved in the research. As people know who may have read this paper, he provided some funding to help the lab move along because this was back at a time when funding was being cut and he wanted to help that along for himself and for others. Uh, we recognized when we came together that this needed an academic component, that something like this really needed a touch of that experience and expertise in dealing with the FDA and other regulatory processes. And so we involved Dr. Bob Carter, who was chief of neurosurgery at UC San Diego at that time. 
So that group of myself, the patient, Dr. Kim and Dr. Carter came together and began to develop this project into what it ultimately became. When Dr. Carter returned to take on the position of chief of neurosurgery at MGH, we all kind of moved here with him. And then we went through a process of evaluating the patient who obviously was very interested in this, but was he truly a suitable candidate? What were the risks involved? What did the FDA need to know to approve a pilot study? That process involved over 1,200 pages of documentation and a year and a half of work with the FDA back and forth to get their approval. It involved the institutional review boards of two different major institutions. The the first surgery actually took place at Will Cornell Medical Center in New York, the second one here. So we had approval from both of those institutions, multiple surgeons, multiple neurologists, you know, all this had to come together to make this possible. And again, I think it's important to understand that this, this was a pilot study done under very special circumstances with the guidance of the FDA. And It was both because this patient had kind of run out of clinical options, was not a great candidate for DBS, but I think in particular because of the relatively rapid uh, progression of his disease and the fact that he himself was a physician and was very knowledgeable about all this was uh, convincing to the FDA that together with the safety data we were able to show them allowed us to proceed. How did you arrive at the use of induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs from which you then derive dopamine cells? And from there, what was the process of growing the cells that you use for transplantation? This is technology that's based on the Nobel Prize uh, winning work of uh, Dr. Yamanaka in Japan, who I think 2006 showed that you could take adult cells and with a, a certain cocktail of in vitro reprogramming factors, convert them back into pluripotent stem cells. It's important to understand what stem cells are and what they do, because there's a lot of shady business that goes on under the label of stem cell clinics and stem cell therapy. And in the great majority of stem cell therapy, the stem cells are being used for the things they do that modulate inflammation and the immune system. In other words, there's been very good work using stem cells for stroke done at Stanford by Dr. Steinberg, but it's clear that they're they're mesenchymal stem cells. They're stem cells that have a limited potential that are made from bone marrow. They can only become certain tissue types, not generally including neurons. They have benefit because they secrete things that change the body's reaction to injury. In our case, we did not want stem cells in the brain. It's important to realize that because you know, we, people hear stem cells and it's confusing. Our stem cells were made from the patient's fibroblasts using this reprogramming method. The stem cells stay in the laboratory. Once the fibroblasts are converted back to stem cells, they have to undergo rigorous safety testing to make sure that they have the same chromosome types, that we haven't introduced mutations in that process. So there's a a lot of safety testing that goes on after that first step. The next step is to reprogram those cells to become the dopamine neurons that we want to put into the brain. And there have been various procedures worked out for that in different labs that have come together partly by reasoning and partly by serendipity. And everybody has their own 
proprietary method of doing this. This work was all published out of our lab, after Dr. Kim's lab, in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. That came out about half a year before the New England Journal article. So that's all out there. But it's, it's the result of many years of figuring out how to make the stem cells and then how to differentiate them. Let's shift gears here. And I would like to talk a little bit about the safety concerns of this methodology. What were the most important safety concerns involved with the use of these reprogrammed iPSCs? Most of all, two things, which override everything else in a field like this, safety and efficacy. So safety, making sure that these could not become tumors. Pluripotent stem cells, well, the word pluripotent means they can turn into lots of different things. And one of the ways you prove that you've got pluripotent stem cells is when you put them into an animal model unmodified, they will cause tumors called teratomas. It's a tumor that consists of tissues from all parts of the body. You do not want them to do that when they're introduced into the patient. And so there have been various methods developed using either radiation or chemical treatments of various sorts or cell sorters, which sort cells by their surface characteristics, all different methods to eliminate the undifferentiated cells, the cells that still have that pluripotent potential before you put them into the patient. And then, of course, what everybody wants to know is, does it work? So these same cells, once we've made them from the patient, complex process, you know, lots of different lines, which one was safest, which one had the fewest mutations, which one was effectively treated with a quercetin. Finally, we put them into animal models of Parkinson's. These are well-established models that mimic certain aspects of Parkinson's disease. And we proved that putting the patient's cells modified as we would make them to go in the brain, when we put them into the animal models, they corrected these Parkinson's symptoms in the animals. So at that point, we had our safety and our efficacy testing. It's a lot, lot of preparation that went into this for the one patient. So you identified a great patient candidate for this treatment. It sounds like as a Parkinson's expert himself, he mutually identified you and your team. And then you went through the documentation and approval process with the FDA. What happened then? Because of the FDA's requirements, they wanted certain types of intraoperative imaging and other things. Some practical issues led us to divide the surgery into the two different institutions. They wanted us to do one side, wait six months, and then do the other, just to make sure things seem safe on one side. Some of these things made more sense than others to us as clinicians, but everything's a compromise, and overall we were quite pleased, but we had to kind of follow their instructions. And where did these surgeries take place? We first went to New York and worked with Dr. Michael Caplett, who's the neurosurgeon there, and Dr. Claire Henchcliffe, both of whom are authors on the paper. She was the neurologist there, got their evaluation of the patient, made sure they were all comfortable, that their IRB was comfortable. And the first surgery took place there in September of 2017. Six months later, we kind of had everything ready to go. And so the second surgery took place at Mass General in March of 2018. Once those two were completed, the patient did great with both of those surgeries. That's when the follow-up started. And again, we wanted to wait 
two years from the first surgery before we reported anything. That doesn't mean that that's the optimal time. We don't know how long it takes to see the maximum benefit from this if there is a benefit, but we wanted to wait long enough that we expected if there were going to be a significant problem or side effect that we would have seen it by then. How did you follow up with the patient and continue your diagnostic work? Obviously, one of the things you follow is people's clinical symptoms. And this is very well worked out with Parkinson's disease. There are various rating scales that we use for this. The the one that's in most widespread use right now is from the Movement Disorder Society, and it's called the UPDRS, Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, which has both motor, non-motor, quality of life aspects. So that was administered on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. MRI scans with and without gadolinium contrast but were part of this at regular intervals, and PET scan, a positron emission tomography, which is a metabolic imaging of the brain that can be done with various tracers. So that's where the tracer comes in. The standard most commonly used one, which is the one we used for this study, is actually, it's levodopa. It's the same molecule that's given as medication, but it's labeled with a radioactive fluorine. So it's 18 fluoridopa that's taken up. And it shows uptake into dopaminergic cells or uptake into the brain, which is presumably a reflection of the number of dopaminergic cells there. And can you tell us about some of the limitations of this case? What you see in the New England Journal as a result of this whole coming together that I mentioned is, again, it's a pilot study. And and when you use the word pilot in this context, it's not like an airline pilot. It's the old-fashioned sense of the word. A pilot was someone who would guide a ship through unfamiliar and dangerous waters to safe harbor. And in that sense, a pilot study is showing us what we don't know and need to ask. So, for example, no one had really done MR imaging of the patients in the fetal tissue days. So we didn't know what the MRI images were supposed to look like as you followed these things. Uh, the time course of outgrowth of these cells, different than fetal tissue, was just unknown. So we learned from this study some of the questions that we will need to address when we open the formal clinical trials, which we're, we're hoping will happen in the next year or two. Okay, great. Now fast forward two years from the surgery, and now you're looking at the patient and evaluating the patient, what, what did you find? Again, safety and efficacy are, are the key here. The first thing is safety. He has had no adverse effects. He's not had any neurologic deterioration. He hasn't developed any tumors. And that's a very important thing to establish when you're doing something like this for the first time. Again, neither the patient nor the doctors were blinded to this. We all knew what was being done. And the field of Parkinson's research is notorious for being subject to placebo effects. You know, you can, you can readily get people to do better or worse on some of these clinical examinations, depending on their circumstances, when they've taken their medication and many other things. So our interpretation of the results really has to be taken in that context. There are a few things which are not subject to placebo effect, like the outcome of the PET scan. And the PET scan clearly shows improvement over that two-year period, that there's more levodopa being taken up than there was, which is the opposite of what you expect in a person with Parkinson's disease, that uptake 
that test gets worse over time, sometimes quite rapidly. And in fact, in this patient, it we have our first PET scan done before either surgery. The first one done shortly after the first surgery is actually worse. It was within three months of the surgery, not enough time for things to, to grow out. But it goes along with his clinical course at the time, which was rapidly worse. I mean, the patient subjectively felt like he, he described as he felt like he was going to die. I, I think it may have been a little bit dramatic, but he had had to give up many activities that had been very meaningful to him. He's an outdoorsman and, you know, swimming and diving and skiing and mountain biking. He had to give all those things up. To clarify, this was before the surgery. Yes, correct? before okay. he had to give all these things up. So he was motivated by the fact that he felt like his life was taken away from him and he wanted a real kind of solution to Sure. His- and, and, okay. and as you might imagine, anyone who's thinking about surgery, whether it's this or DBS, tends to be at that point. When you consider having brain surgery, there's a, a big motivation behind it. And for Parkinson's patient, it's this, it's quality of life. So in terms of how he's done since then, the outcome, as I mentioned, first thing, he's had no adverse effects. But at a minimum, you can say he's not worse. He's not deteriorating anymore. And a number of the objective measures have improved. So the, the PET scan results clearly better not super dramatic, but well within the range of improvement that was seen with the fetal tissue patients who did well. So that was some objective evidence that we've had an effect and and a benefit there. The MRI scans, again, showed safety. We didn't develop any tumors. But what really people want to know about this is, yeah, but does the patient feel better? He's gone back to swimming and diving. He's dramatically better with skiing. He's riding mountain bikes again. He can tie his shoelaces again. He can button his shirt. His voice volumes improve. He can turn over in bed without help. He is, as far as his own assessment is, significantly better. Again, you have to take that in the context of an N of one in an unblinded study, but there's enough evidence there, both of safety and efficacy, that we are all strongly motivated to go on to the clinical trial for this. For a moment now, I would like to change the focus to the broader scientific community, which has voiced their concerns with the ethics of the funding of this pilot study. The patient gave millions of dollars to help fund the research in what has been referred to as pay-to-play. What is your response to these concerns? Funding is is difficult to come by. We're all used to getting funding from NIH and government sources, but that was not historically the way most people got their funding to do science. You know, looking back in time, people were either were gentlemen scientists who funded their own research, or it was donations from individuals or foundations, and people will rarely donate to causes they're not interested in in one way or another. In this particular case, the patient helped with the funding, but Dr. Kim had been funded by traditional sources in NIH for over 25 years before this started. So this was a supplement to keep that going. Under no circumstances would this patient have been considered if he did not meet the criteria for a candidate for this. And this idea of expanded access to therapy is increasingly accepted. And we're not the first 
nor will we be the last to be published in New England Journal in a situation where private funding was used to expedite research. There was another one recently, you know, with some of these orphan diseases. So sure, we were very conscious of the fact that our patient was involved in subsidizing some of the work. We ran this past two IRBs, as I mentioned to you, as well as the FDA. And we were all okay with that, realizing that this is something that needs to be addressed. But in terms of pay to play, he would not have been accepted as a candidate if he did not qualify and passed muster with those two IRBs and with the FDA. He did contribute, but I think making a contribution towards the research that benefits you is not an unusual thing to do. It was also very clear from the beginning from his own statements that this work was meant to help others, even if it could not benefit him. And finally, I would make the point that pay to play for a therapy that's already an approved established therapy, but it's very expensive, that's one thing. It's out there, it's approved. I can afford it and you can't. That's one thing. This man was providing support and became a first in human subject. It's not always such a good thing to be first. You know, we've touched on some of those things already. Is it safe? What's the right number of cells to use? So you're taking a significant risk when you do that. And I think that the the risk involved also has to be considered here as part of this. Now that you have this successful pilot, what comes next? I think for the future, there are many possibilities. There was a recent, very exciting paper that came out of the group at UC San Diego about directly reprogramming astrocytes, some of the supporting cells in the brain, to turn into neurons right there inside the brain. You know, if that can be done, that's great. Of course, that's been done in animals so far. And and there are issues about how well you can control it and where else the virus might go and what else it might do. But it's exciting to see people coming up with various different options to replace the dopamine cells. Uh, As I mentioned earlier on, we have a huge need to understand where the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease come from, such as the dementia, which overlaps with Alzheimer's disease. You know, we see Alpha-synuclein is a molecule that accumulates in the cells in some Parkinson's patient that seems to be related to their destruction. It's not clear why that happens. You know what a prion disease is. Some people think it's a kind of prion disease. So there's a lot of basic research and understanding of what the both the motor and the non-motor symptoms are in this and to come up with better treatments based on that better understanding. Even from what we already do understand, the expression of the disease is variable, the cause of the disease is variable. People have asked us about the possibility of taking people with genetic forms of the disease and using CRISPR-Cas9 to modify the cells there in the dish before we put them back in to correct that defect. Uh, I know there's some of our friendly competitor labs in the field are working on things like that, but it's not entirely clear that when a genetic defect causes Parkinson's, that it does so by directly killing the dopamine neuron or whether it's the environment for the dopamine neuron that's the problem. In other words, is the problem cell autonomous or is it environmental therapy? I think DBS has recently improved. We now have feedback systems for DBS so that whereas before we were just kind of blasting white noise in, sort of an electrical version of those old holes we used to make in the brain. Well, now we can actually record and stimulate. 
So the improvements in that. There's even improvements in how we give the medicine. You asked early on about the the levodopa, which is the gold standard. Well, now you can have it as an intestinal gel, which is put into the intestine and absorb more slowly over time to even out the effects and overcome some of the unpredictability. So again, this is an exciting time. Well said. We also feel privileged and honored to have you today with us to deep dive in this really medical history in Parkinson's disease. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank, Thank you. you so Thanks much. for inviting me. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. Thank you to Dr. Rudy Tenzi for providing us with the music for our intro. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also visit our website at sciencerehash.com. We would also like to thank all the members of Science Rehash who contributed their time in making Science Rehash possible, including our writers and producers, Madura Lolikar, Kira Brenner, Shuang Zeng, and Chiara Maffei. We would also like to thank our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our business development director, Dichi Lo, our sound editors, Sophia Nastri, Tavi Pollard, and Jared Warsaw, our assistant, Rebecca Solson, and our creative director, Emma Brand.